the last month, we've been in a series about technology, asking the question, how do we put technology in its proper place? How do we ensure that these phones and tablets and computers and all these other things that are added to our lives that we have, how do we ensure that uh, they're not taking away from our lives, but they're only adding to it? And in Christianity, one of the problems that we've had, I think, is the assumption that transformation happens because we get uh, more information in our heads. And so we've prepared our churches in ways that we basically do information dumps into people's heads every single Sunday, right? So we do. We just add more information to it. I went to school to do that. I, I think it's important to have good information because transformation into the image of Jesus doesn't happen unless we know who Jesus is and what he teaches. So information is important. But if it's not brought together with practice, with discipline, with living out the commands of Jesus, it will do us no good. Because ultimately, this is a faith that's lived, not a faith that's just believed. In fact, when Jesus called the disciples, he didn't say, believe me. What did he say? He said, follow me. This is an active move into the world. One of the passages that I've dwelled on for a lot of years now is actually something that an older student wrote in one of my high school yearbooks that I looked up to. He wrote down James 1.22, and I had to look it up because I didn't know it at the time, but maybe this is a... Uh, one we want to commit to memory, James 1. James, again, was the brother of Jesus. And so he knows a little bit what he's talking about in terms of Jesus and his life. This is what he says, James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And if your Christianity, if you're following Jesus is just hearing the word, but not putting it into practice, I want to encourage you to, to, to take the next step with that. To do something about it. Today, I want to challenge us to action as we close this series. Let's begin with prayer as we open God's word today. Oh God, we are people who know better how to be human doings than human beings. How to have a list of to-dos, and until we get those to-dos done, we never feel like we are fully able to rest and breathe. But God, today, may our only doing be to do your word. And may our being be a realization, God, that we are created in your son's image and we are enough because of who you see us to be. So thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that abides in each one of us who are believers. We pray today that we can move toward action out of the information that we access today. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching. And I pray that you would pour through each person who's here the gift of listening to you and to your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Every generation of parents has to deal with some kind of advancement that they didn't deal with growing up. And when that happens, it's hard to know how to chart a way forward, isn't it? Hard to know how to parent the next generation when they're dealing, you're dealing with a whole different set of matters than the generation before. A lot of generations have dealt with this struggle, if you think back. I mean, think about in the 1450s, right, when the printing press comes out. Before that, parents can kind of pour whatever information they want into the heads of their kids. But all of a sudden now with a book, somebody else writing somewhere else has the, has the chance to craft ideas and put it into the heads of young people. At some point, parents had to figure out how do we process this new technology that's changing and shaping our world differently than our kids' worlds. Or think about this change that happened. There was a day when marriage looked very different. When you would have a spouse because your parents had arranged that marriage. But at some point that changed. And imagine the threat. Imagine the anxiety of this generation before who had been forced to marry someone. And it worked out just fine, it seemed. 
for their generation and way of seeing things. But this new generation is beginning to think that, no, you can fall in love with someone and, and you can actually make covenant out of a connection that you sense that God may be drawing you to someone outside of your parents' control. What was that like for those parents who were experiencing that change? Or think about the university generation. There was a day where, where children would learn at home and they would apprentice with their parents or, They would learn something in a small town. That was their world. But eventually came this idea that maybe you go off to learn at a place of an institution of learning, a university. You might go for four years away from the hometown you grew up in. Imagine the threat that would be to those early parents that were having to send their kids off and not knowing who they would meet and what they would be taught and friends they would develop. And maybe even that their their spouse one day might grow up someplace else and they might move off somewhere else. Or think about the generation in the 20th century that had to deal with the car being the place where dating happened, right? I mean, that's a huge shift, right? Because before you would, you would court and you would show up on the porch and the family would be present as part of that process. But, but we saw things differently in the 20th century because now children had access to transportation and those cars would take them places. And, and the entire world of romantic love and, and, and dating and marriage looks very different as a result of that. That was hard for a generation to figure out how to pass on to their kids. How, how do we walk through this transition? And then some of you grew up in the 60s, and I don't have to say any more about that, right? That was its own generational shift. And then the MTV generation. But now we're dealing with a new generational struggle, and it is our screens. It's this technology that is ever-present. And it feels like we're dealing with issues that previous parents didn't have to deal with. And in some ways, this is entirely new, isn't it? But in some ways, this is quite old, this idea. Because we've been concerned about technology making us antisocial for years now. We just check this photo out, right? There was fear one day, at one point about this being the antisocial movement. Newspapers. But here's the thing. This is a new struggle. Because you can get to the end of a newspaper, but you can't get to the end of cyberspace. Like, like newspapers were a different kind of struggle. And we're dealing with a new set of tools that are very different. That's a go, right? If, if you had a mower, it was a tool that was used, but it was put away in a specific place. Put that mower in the shed, all your tools for the yard in the shed or the tractor, you put it in, in the barn. Like you, you had a place for those tools. Or think about an oven or a, a mixer, right? Those are tools that are used in specific places and you leave them in those spaces when you go to use them. Or think about all the other things in our lives, the tools, uh, golf clubs, right? Those are tools. We talked about that earlier in the series. You put that in the garage, you put it in your trunk, depending on how much you play. But they're in a specific place and you use them for a specific purpose. And while these tools helped us do our work, they didn't do the work for us. The dream of a tool that would work by itself was strictly the stuff of magic. The sorcerer's apprentice's dream of a broom that would sweep up the place by itself. But we have that today, don't we? Some of you own a Roomba, right? These machines are doing the work for us, and they're easy to use. In years past, you had to learn how to use a hammer. You had to learn how to use a nail gun, right? You had to learn how to use certain tools. But now it's almost like it's second sense for us. Well, for some of us, right? Some of us are still trying to find that do not disturb button, right? Technology is everywhere. And for those who thought of picking up your phone to read a text message, we can now read messages on our watches because even that's too hard, right? Now we don't even have to pick up a, a device. Now we just look and the message is there for us. It's getting easier and easier. And it's early days. The internet was more like a tool. You remember this, don't you? You had to go online. And what that meant was a lot of trouble, right? 
And you had to hear that awful noise when you got on AOL, right? Now you don't have to go online. Uh, online internet is like breathing. It's everywhere. Something you have to connect to even. And all of this happened in about two generations. It just works. So how could a person ever be bored with all this technology at our disposal in 2018 of all times? You're waiting at the doctor's office. What do you do? You grab your phone. You're waiting in line. You grab your phone. If you're playing at the playground and your kids are trying to get your attention, you play on your phone. If you're driving a two-ton car on the road, grab your phone. How could we ever get so bored? And here's something you may not know. The word boredom didn't even show up in any language, our language, until about 300 years ago. The English word doesn't appear until the 1850s, and its parent word bore, as in he's such a bore, appears only a century earlier. The French word ennui, I think that's how you say it, I didn't take French, begins to, be, uh, begins to mean what we call boredom around that same time, the mid-19th century. And before that time, there was simply wasn't a common word of feeling frustration that overtakes so many of us so often. So here's the question. Could it be that modern life is actually more boring than what was before that? Our world has so many distractions. So many things that pull us away from what's right in front of us. It overtakes us so often. So, man, some of you feel despair right now, right? That's so many options. You've got so many shows to, on Netflix, you couldn't binge watch it enough to get through them, right? And there's this kind of subtle kind of ache in our souls that's grown through that. And there's a reason why we get bored. I think boredom is a, a perfectly modern condition. The technology that promises to release us from our boredom is actually the very thing that's leading us to be even more bored with our own lives. In fact, I think I've noticed that the more I entertain my children with these devices, the more bored they are. Years ago, I could entertain myself on a street, with friends in my neighborhood all day long. An empty field once held such great promises about all the things I could learn and see and dissect. So here is one result of our technology. We become people who desperately need entertainment and distraction because we've lost the world of meadows and meteors. In fact, I'm not even sure how far I would have to drive to see stars in the night sky at night away from concrete these days. I don't think it's incidental that the earliest citation of the word boredom shows up at this time period. In the mid-18th century, at the earliest we can tell. It actually comes from the language of aristocrats and nobility of all places. They didn't have technology, but thanks to their wealth and position, they had a kind of easy everywhere all their own. The first people who were bored were the very people who didn't do manual work, who didn't cook for themselves, whose lives were served by others who had to. See, boredom is something that we should pay attention to. Boredom is actually a warning sign, a lot like pain in our lives, right? We know that. Pain is trying to alert us to something not being right in our lives, not being right in our bodies. And I would suggest to you that if you're bored, it's not something to numb. It's actually kind of a warning sign. Something in your spirit, something in your soul is not working on all cylinders as it should. Because deep down, we all know this. Our phones are making us more depressed. Not once have you ever gotten off Facebook and felt better about yourself. Never. 
So last week we talked about this, that there's a fruit that comes from our lives. And there's a fruit from whatever we plant seeds and water in our lives. We're going to see fruit. And it may be good fruit or it may be bad fruit. But right now you're planting seeds and you're watering them. And, and something's going to come from whatever you're doing. So boredom is not something that we fix with technology. No, no, boredom is a state of the soul that must be addressed in other ways. We turn to our apps to avoid boredom, but they might just be the very thing creating the boredom in our lives. We're treating the fruit the wrong way. We have to stop treating our boredom with a screen. See, we've all been taught wrong on this. We think the way to fix things in our lives is always more. If you're hungry, order nachos. If you're bored, then watch a movie. If you're lonely, watch pornography. But if we're honest, that's never the answer, is it? More? Boredom is not something to avoid. In fact, boredom can be the very place in which happiness and joy is hidden. We just sat long enough to discover what's there. In 2018, we're finally realizing that more may not be the answer to all the questions that we had imagined. Because growing up, when I was sitting in a stoplight, that was the very place that ideas and creativity may come to me. It was the idea, the place the aha might happen. But today, the only ahas I find at a stoplight are on Twitter. And that's a problem. It's a problem that we no longer know how to create. It's a problem that we no longer know how to sit in silence. What would happen, though, if instead of busying ourselves so we didn't have to deal with our boredom, we actually chose to sit with and engage our boredom? It's difficult in our world to find a moment when we're free from distractions. Because you go to a restaurant later today, and I guarantee you, over the head of the person that you're talking to and eating with, there's going to be a screen trying to take your attention elsewhere. And we move from place to place, and music music transitions us everywhere you go. Have you noticed this? You walk into a doctor's office, there's music. You walk into an elevator, and there's music. You walk into a store, and you shop with music. You walk outside on the way to the store, and the rocks are blaring music, right? Literally, in 2018, the rocks are crying out to us. As I was prepping for this series, I learned a new term that I think is what's working on us right now. What may be leading us to that boredom or a life less than what we want to live. It's the term nudge, a nudge. Here's how uh, the book I read defined a nudge. and I, I see this all over the place. Nudges are small changes in the environment around us that make it easier for us to make the choices we want to make or want others to make or that others want us to make. Nudges don't generally make us do anything, but they are uh, more often certain choice, make certain choices easier and more likely. They don't focus so much on changing anything about our impulses or our desires. They're just trying to kind of nudge us in a direction towards some kind of outcome. The world around us is nudging us all the time. You go to a buffet restaurant. And that restaurant's going to make a nudge to you because they put the soup and the salad at the beginning of the line, which costs far less than the roast beef that comes later in the line. Grocery stores are going to put right in front of you uh, chips and soda with their high profit margin. They're going to hide at the back the eggs and the milk that you need most, which costs a lot more. Sometimes you don't even make a profit on that. Do you know that if you want your kids to eat more apples, you can nudge them? Like scholarship shows us this People are, people are saying, if you will cut up those apples and you'll put them on the table in front of your kids, they're much more likely to eat apples than if you give them a whole apple or keep them in the refrigerator. If we make it easier, we can nudge our kids in good directions, but that same nudge that can take us in the right direction can take us in the wrong direction. I read another study. It was really interesting about 401k retirement plans. 
Because when those were first coming out, businesses would force you to opt in for a 401k retirement plan. And what they discovered was if they would actually uh, have the default be an opt-in situation, then far more people will, will go through the hassle to actually opt out than opting in, right? I mean, just that nudge is an automatic thing. Or in Austria, this is organ uh, donation, transplants, right? That kind of thing. When you're at the end of your life and you're willing to, to donate organs. In Austria, they have an automatic opt-in default mode for people. You have to opt out on your own. And you know how many people donate their organs in Austria? 90% of people. But in Germany and the United States, where you have to opt-in rather than opting out, only 15% of people end up donating their organs at the end. I mean, just think about how those nudges are powerful in our lives, right? So what does this have to do with our technology? What you may not know is that the makers of your technological devices and the apps that you download that you think are for free are actually using those to nudge you in directions as well. You'd be shocked to find out how much money is being poured into these app developers and and the people who are trying, their job, their whole job is to figure out how to keep you on that app longer. How to make sure that you're there so that you'll buy their product, but also how to keep you there so they can spend more money, get more money from advertisers. So the longer they can draw you on there, more of an impact they can have on you. And we sometimes forget this, that we're being nudged and that nothing is really as free as it seems. The other day I was uh, realizing this when I was playing a game on my phone. It had been a couple of years since I'd played Candy Crush and one of the chapters in my book was talking about it, so I got stuck one day on it. Isn't that funny? It's own kind of nudge, right? So I pulled this up and... And all of a sudden I realized that that phone goes to full screen, right? That may seem like a good gaming decision, but let me tell you, it's more sinister than that because the thing they crowd out when they go to full screen is the time on the top of the cell phone. It's an old casino trick, right? You darken the windows and you keep people in there longer and they have no idea how much time they've wasted or how much money has been given over and handed over as well. You see, we waste our lives on games like this, not even realizing the sinister ways the people behind that machine are trying to take our time and trying to take our resources from us. Because if you can keep people from knowing what time of day it is and keep them in the darkness, they'll stay there. So what do we do about this dynamic? How do we overcome these nudges? Because we have to do something. Because they're working against us, and so we're going to have to think about how to work against these nudges. And I think the way you work against these nudges is by the spiritual disciplines. Nudges are trying to move you in a direction, not by changing internal values, but by kind of reminding you to go someplace. But spiritual disciplines, what they're about is really training ourselves to have deep internal values that can supersede or overtake the nudges that are there in our lives that might take us elsewhere. You do this in your lives. If you've ever grown in any area of addiction, right? What you're doing is you're, you're working against the nudge that's automatic and natural all around you in the world and trying to build deeper internal values and work through the things that were leading you to be more vulnerable to the nudge and having these, these practices and these steps that lead you to be more whole and be able to say no in those moments. Spiritual disciplines are very much like what, what weight callers call progressive overload. The best way to gain strength is by pushing your muscles to the very edge of their current capacity for a relatively brief time. The point of working out is not just to be able to complete more reps with higher weight a few times a week. It's to develop and train our bodies to be healthier all the time. And this is how spiritual disciplines work as well. We're not able to sit in boredom because we don't sit in silence and solitude. We're not able to deal with those moments of distraction because we're never in that centered place, it seems, or enough to be able to build the muscles that we can say no to our technology to be present to the people in front of us. So these nudges, they play to our weaknesses. 
And the spiritual disciplines are trying to build an inner strength, an inner sense of connection to God, an inner sense of being able to say yes to the right things in the right moments and saying no to the wrong things in the wrong moments. And a lot of us, we just don't spend any time in solitude. Some of us are extroverts and we don't know how to. We're scared of that. Some of us are introverts and our, our schedule is just too busy. In fact, we're worn out because we're with people all the time rather than setting aside the time we know fills us up. And one thing I know about Jesus is he was present to the people in front of him. And I think there's a reason why he was president. Yes, it helps that he was God. I think he's also involved in some practices that are forming a way of life in him, building muscles toward a certain way of seeing the world. And so I want you to open with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. I want to read verses 35 to 39. And I want you to hear this story in light of this idea about nudges and about the discipline that's being developed to know what our true purpose and why is. So listen to this in, in Mark 1 verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If you have spent much time in the gospels, you begin to realize this is just a regular pattern of Jesus life. He learns to get away, learns to spend time in solitude. He knows the crowds are coming later that day. And a lot of you have crowds and you have schedules like Jesus. And it's just so busy, isn't it? So he knows that if I'm going to be able to know what my why is and what my purpose is and say yes to the right things and be able to see people and be present with them. The only way that's going to happen is if I learn a way, a rhythm, a pattern, a discipline, being able to know who I am, who God's called me to be, what my gifts are, and what my schedule will be. But even beyond the schedule, how am I present to the interruptions that may be in my schedule? And so Jesus does this over and over again. There's a rhythm in his life of silence and solitude and then back into community and into ministry. I'm curious in your life right now, where is that rhythm for you? Is there a rhythm or is it just people in busyness? I want to encourage you. You got to add in some discipline. Add in some space, some science. That's really hard for some in this season, I know. You're thinking, my kids go to the bathroom with me. How am I going to find a moment for any kind of solitude? Let's keep reading verse 36. Pay attention in those nudges. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. There's a lot of people that could say the same thing to you, right? Doesn't it feel like everyone's looking for you? Emails just keep coming. Text messages just keep coming. The good things keep coming. You know what they're doing, right? It's not sinister. This is a nudge from the disciples to Jesus. Jesus has gone off and taken his time away. And when you don't give time away, all you do is listen to those external forces. And these disciples are saying, Jesus, there are people that need healing. We can hear their cries. Surely you can hear this. Surely you need to get out of this time of prayer and go and do what you've been called to do. Go. Everyone's looking for you. Keep healing people. Preach the kingdom. That's why we're here. It's a nudge that's being given to Jesus. But I want you to see how he responds to this nudge because of this place of solitude he's gotten to. Verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. That phrase, that is why I have come, is an important passage. Because the only reason he's able to say no to these disciples, to a very good thing, right? A thing that should be the center of his ministry, preaching and healing and all these things that he's doing. He knows why he has come. And the only reason he can say no is because he knows exactly what his why is. That's why we started the series the way we did. We wanted you to know, what are your internal values? What's your mission as a family, as an individual? If you know your why, you know what to say yes and no to. Otherwise, the first time a nudge comes, a good nudge, you're going to say, okay, let's get up and go. But Jesus has spent his time in solitude. He's spent his time with the Lord. He knows what his why is. 
And because he knows what his why is, he says no to a very good thing. It'd be great to go and heal these people, right? There are people that are crying out for his attention. Jesus, why would you not do this? And the reason why is because he knew that his ministry was to go beyond just that space. It was going to go into all the world. It was going to mean he was going to have to move from Galilee. He was going to have to go to Samaritan territory. He's going to have to go to Jerusalem eventually. And then the church was going to have to do the very same thing. And the church loses its mission and why as well. You realize this, right? Because they stay in Jerusalem waiting on the Holy Spirit as Jesus told them. But it takes a persecution to get them to go further. They forget their why. And, and I would suggest that we as the church still forget our why, right? I mean, we come together in these buildings and we think it's about this and we come and we consume and we consume goods and services, really good things. But we forget that the mission isn't about what we do here on Sunday morning. It's about what we're called out to do in the world, right? This is why I have come, he says. So right now, a lot of you are saying yes to a lot of really good things. In fact, you may not know how to say no to really good things. I mean, how do you say no to that charity dinner that comes up? How do you say no to that mission trip that comes up? How do you say no to another work thing that could get you to the next step? I mean, there are all kinds of good things that we can say yes to. The only way you'll be able to say no in those moments to the really good things is if you have the perfect thing, the better thing, the the best thing, the greatest thing. If you know what your why is. And the only way you'll have that is if you build the muscle. Is if you spend time in silence. And in solitude, if you listen from the Father, otherwise, you can be pulled by any app developer or any preacher who tells you you need to do something. Lots of good things. As we close this series this morning, this has not been a series about saying no to technology. I hope you didn't hear that message. I hope more than anything, what it's clarified for you is to let you know you have a purpose on this earth. You have an abundant life that God is calling you to. You have a why that you are here for. I believe that. I want you to believe the same thing. And the only way you'll know your why clearly and be able to stick to it in the moments of good things and better things is to be able to know who you are, to have the spirit of God speaking in your life. And the only way for that to happen is to get quiet long enough to hear from God. And so in this week ahead, I want to challenge you to that. The challenge of our lives is a challenge of learning to be here. And I would suggest that most of us are never actually here. In your heads, you're ahead for the week that's coming up. You're ahead to your vacation you can't wait to get to. You're ahead to that day when school will finally get let out. You're ahead to all these things. You're you're living for the future. You're living with worry about what may come. And every time you worry, you are not here. You are not present in this moment to the gift that God has given here. The same is true about the past, right? If you live with anxiety or regret about the past, you're you're giving away the present moment to something that happened long ago in your life. And that's why Jesus says, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Today is enough trouble about itself. I think he'd say the same thing about yesterday. Don't, Don't worry about yesterday. If you'll confess your sins, that's all forgiven and gone. Live and learn to live in this present moment. Be silent long enough that you can be present with the people who are there. Just thinking in my own life about how many times that my kids were right there in these key moments and I missed the moment because I was thinking about something going on at work or I was thinking about a meeting that I had coming up or I was thinking about this sermon I had to preach. I wasn't present. I wasn't here. One of the most important things about growing and maturing in the Christian faith is learning to somehow get out of your past and out of your future and to learn to live in the present now, the present moment. So I want you to ask that question this week as you walk through your week. When you're at work, 
be at work. Give, give all your energies to that present moment to, to, to produce the good things. We had a series earlier this year about how important work is and how you give your best energies. That. That's great. But when you go home, don't be at work. Ask the question, am I actually at home? When you're, when you're with your kids or, or you're on that date later this week with, with a, a significant other in your life, are, ask the question, am I here right now? Am I present? That, that's how powerful this button is on our phones, right? What that button, just one small push on our phones, what it allows us to do is to be more present to the moment that's in front of us. So that's my challenge to you this week is that you engage in the spiritual disciplines. Later on this year, if you're wondering about how to step into this more, about more about disciplines, I've been walking more into this in my life. And I'm excited about a, a ministry that's going to be launching later this fall as we continue our push into deeper discipleship, how to do life in the kingdom together. It's called Rooted. And some of you may have heard about this. Some of our, our leaders in this church have already been through this. Uh, d- discipleship experience. And I want to encourage you to think about that. This will come after Labor Day this year. Again, you'll hear a lot more. But if you're wondering, if you're hungering for that silence, that learning to be still with God, to know what your why is and how to discern that, um, we've got to walk in community together. We've got to learn to sit still before God. Amen. So carve out some time this week and carve out that question in all that you're doing. Am I here right now? Am I present? The spiritual life is about learning to be here. So I hope you've at least been here this morning. And I pray that as you leave today, that you'll be here as well. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, we, we thank you so much for the gift of your spirit that you've given to us. God, we live so much of our lives not being here. We live so much of our lives being in the past and being concerned about the future and, and God, you're teaching over and over again through Jesus is a reminder that the only way we know how we're supposed to be, where we need to be and how to hear from your voice is to somehow carve enough time in the midst of our busy schedules to realize that you are the person who gives us our identity and our purpose that, that plants plans far ahead of us in advance. And we're open to them in the moment if we are allowed and able to be present in here. And so God, for those that are living in the past right now, whether that's a nostalgia about the way things were, they wish it could go back to, or that's regret about uh, past experiences or sins that have been present. God, I pray that forgiveness would be the very thing that you would uh, lead into their lives. God, it would be confession, a spirit of moving past God. We thank you for what your son did to allow that possibility. Now for those who are living in the future, for everyone that, that believes life is around the next corner, once something happens, God, I pray that you would relieve them of that hope. And remind them of the hope that's found here, God, that there are gifts here with the gratitude that we try to live into in our lives. So God, help us to be grateful people because gratitude is about the present moment. I pray all this, God, in the name of your son, Jesus, who did this so well. Amen.